You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to episode 404 of our Civil War podcast. I'm Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello y'all. Welcome to the podcast. As you guys will recall, by the end of the last episode, darkness covered the battlefield on the evening of Saturday, September 19th, 1863, and Claiborne's night attack had ground to a halt, which brought an end to the fighting on the second day of the battle. The hours of darkness after the end of the fighting on the 19th brought no relief from the suffering for the soldiers of both sides. The temperature plummeted along with the setting sun. In fact, frost would cover the landscape come morning. Along most of the front, the opposing lines remained so close that campfires were strictly prohibited. For most men, sleep was impossible. Sergeant Charles Partridge of the 96th Illinois explained, quote, A dozen would lie down close together with a command, By the right flank, spoon, and three or four ponchos covered the squad. For a time, everything was all right, but after a while, the outside ones began to freeze out, and by midnight, all were up. Since the Confederates, for the most part, were clothed in homespun cotton, they suffered more from the cold. An Arkansan, Private B.W. Green, said, quote, More than 75% of the clothing the soldiers wore was sent them from home by their families. The clothing of our soldiers was of cotton fabric and one thin blanket to the man. I do not now remember ever having seen a gray overcoat in our army worn by officer or man, but I do remember quite a number of blue coats which were taken from dead Yankees. Shoes were sometimes issued, but usually we got them from home or from dead Yankees. I spent two hours walking over the field of Chickamauga to get a pair of shoes from a dead Yankee, but they were in such demand that I found none. Adding to the misery of the freezing men was the lack of water on the battlefield. Hardly any rain had fallen for over a month, and the many streams that normally flowed down from Missionary Ridge were bone dry. The Confederates could draw water from Chickamauga Creek, but within the Federal lines, sources of water were few and far between. Down below the right flank of the Army of the Cumberland, opposite the large Federal Hospital at the Gordon Lee Mansion, the clear and abundant waters of Crawfish Springs bubbled. Moved by the thirst of the parched soldiers, especially the rapidly dehydrating wounded who lay everywhere, 
Colonel Thomas Harrison of the 39th Indiana Mounted Infantry had his men gather all the canteens they could and fill them at the springs. Harrison estimated that by midnight his Hoosiers had delivered over 1,000 canteens of spring water to grateful infantrymen. Even more so than the cold and the lack of water, what most men would never forget about that night were the cries of the wounded. Private Alva Greest of the 72nd Indiana scribbled in his journal, quote, The thunder of battle has ceased, but oh, a worse, more heart-rending sound breaks upon the night air. The groans from thousands of wounded in our front crying in anguish and pain, some for death to relieve them others for water. Oh, if I could only drown this terrible sound. Lieutenant R.M. Collins of the 15th Texas Dismounted Cavalry said, quote, All night we could hear the wounded between ours and the federal lines calling and begging for water. The night was cold and crisp, and the dense woodland was dark and gloomy. The bright stars above us, and flickering light from some old dead pine trees that were burning in an old field on our left and in front, giving everything a weird, ghostly appearance. Sergeant Alfred Phillips of the 36th Ohio never forgot how, during the afternoon, a fellow named Burton in the regiment was told that his brother, serving in the 92nd Ohio, had been killed. After dark, Burton walked out into Brock Field to search for him. He found his brother, unconscious but not yet dead, with a bullet wound to the head. Burton lifted him off the ground and carried him into the lines of the 36th. He laid his brother down, then sat beside him to wait for him to die. Sergeant Phillips watched Burton keep his sorrowful vigil. Quote, the frosty air was heavy with fog and the darkness was intense. Through the long hours of the night, he sat by his dying brother alone, listening to his labored breathing, till near morning he was quiet. He pressed his ear close to his heart to hear it beating, held his cheek close to his mouth in the darkness to catch the faintest breath, but he was dead. Then he borrowed a shovel from the battery and dug a grave at the foot of a large tree. Then he wrapped him in his blanket a man from the battery assisted him to lower the body into the grave. At the end of the last episode, we said that during the hours of darkness, before the sun rose on the morning of the 20th, both army commanders had serious decisions to make. On the federal side, it was William Rosecrans' preference to gather his senior commanders together after a day of battle to discuss the day's events and plan subsequent operations. Chickamauga was no exception, and so on the evening of the 19th, Old Rosie sent word that all his senior commanders should gather at Army headquarters at the Widow Glenn's cabin. George Thomas had quite a distance to travel, while Alexander McCook and Thomas Crittenden were already nearby. Gordon Granger, commander of the Reserve Corps, was up at Rossville, but he was connected to Rosecrans headquarters by field telegraph. At least one division commander, Phil Sheridan, and one brigade commander, John Wilder, attended the meeting, at least for a while. 
Also present was Assistant Secretary of War Charles Dana. As y'all might recall, Secretary of War Edwin Stanton would send Dana out into the field as his personal representative and, well, as his spy, for lack of a better word. Dana apparently said little during the meeting, although no doubt his very presence probably affected what was said and certainly would have served to deter any discussion of a retreat. At any rate, after staff officers reported each major formation's strength and losses, the talk turned to the Army's options. Clearly, the Army of the Cumberland was in no position to go over to the attack, considering its losses and the current jumbled nature of its command structure, with many units having been shuffled around, away from their parent formations. In addition, Rosecrans was aware that Bragg had received reinforcements from Virginia and that those reinforcements had already shown up on the battlefield, so Old Rosie believed the Confederate Army now substantially outnumbered his own. Retreat to Chattanooga would be risky, since it would mean disengaging and pulling off a successful withdrawal in the middle of a battle. But while a retreat to Chattanooga might be doable, Rosecrans was aware it would be perceived poorly in Washington. A further consideration was that every division hospital, save one, was located on the flanks of the battlefield, seven to the south at Crawfish Springs and two to the north at Cloud Springs. There was simply no way the thousands of wounded men at these hospitals could all be evacuated by morning if the army retreated. Past history also seemed to advise against a retreat since Braxton Bragg's record in the previous battles at Perryville and Stones River suggested that when a federal army stood its ground, Bragg would eventually withdraw from the field. Therefore, by elimination, a resolute defense seemed to be the best course of action, and that was indeed Rosecrans' decision he decided the Army of the Cumberland would hold its ground for at least another day. But if the Army was going to make a stand, there yet remained the question of how it would be carried out, since the Army was currently a disorganized mess. By the time the fighting ended on the 19th, George Thomas, on the left, controlled five of the Army's ten infantry divisions, three from his own 14th Corps, and one each from the 20th and 21st Corps. Crittenden commanded a mixed jumble of units from his own 21st Corps and McCook's 20th Corps. And, as we've mentioned previously, McCook himself was largely without a command by the time the fighting ended on the 19th, since his men had been fed into the fight that day a division at a time wherever they seemed to be needed. Despite already controlling five of the Army's ten infantry divisions, George Thomas felt sure he would be attacked heavily in the morning, and that night at the Widow Glenn's cabin, he made it clear he wanted still more reinforcements. Having said his piece, the exhausted Thomas dozed off in his chair. Charles Dana said the big Virginian, quote, was so tired since he had not slept at all the night before and had been in battle all day, that he went to sleep every minute. Every time Rosecrans spoke to him, he would straighten up and answer, but he would always say the same thing. I would strengthen the left. And then he would be asleep again, sitting up in his chair. 
Once the discussion wound down, Rosecrans outlined his plan for the next day. As everyone expected, the Army would fight defensively on the 20th, since it was obviously in no shape to go over to the attack, and, as we've already mentioned, Rosecrans believed he was substantially outnumbered by Bragg due to the Confederate reinforcements that had arrived on the battlefield. George Thomas would continue to hold the left with the divisions of Baird, Johnson, Palmer, Reynolds, and Brannan, and the rest of the army would support him as much as possible. Even Granger, with his three brigades up at Rossville, was ordered to be ready to come to Thomas's assistance if circumstances made it necessary. As y'all will recall, in the last show, we said that Thomas didn't feel confident with the rather slapdash nature of his line up there on the Army's left, and so he had in mind to pull the troops under his command back to a new, more defensible position. That evening, Thomas had already started to do that before the meeting at the Widow Glen's, and by morning, he'll have rearranged the divisions under his command so they're positioned in a more secure defensive line around Kelly Field, all except Brannon's division, which he'll pull back into reserve. McCook would command the Army's right. He would have his own two divisions, led by Phil Sheridan and Jefferson C. Davis, and, for the time being, James Negley's division from the 14th Corps. Wilder's Lightning Brigade would be pulled back from the Vineyard Field area at dawn and extend McCook's line to the south. Rosecrans expected McCook to somehow hold a line a mile long with only five brigades, two of whom, Carlin's and Martin's, numbered only 800 men between them. Well, meanwhile, Crittenden was to form the Army's Reserve by pulling back Horatio Van Cleves and Tom Wood's divisions, and placing them on the high ground behind the seam between George Thomas's and Alexander McCook's lines. Rosecrans left the precise locations Crittenden and McCook would occupy to their discretion. Because it took time to draft the various orders and read them aloud, the meeting at the Widow Glen's cabin lasted beyond midnight. Even then, although the generals had much to do upon returning to their respective commands, Rosecrans held the group a while longer and asked McCook to sing. McCook's choice, a sad ballad entitled The Hebrew Maiden's Lament, could hardly have put the tired officers in a happy state of mind as they headed out into the early morning hours of Sunday, September 20th, to prepare their commands for the third day of battle. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. 
I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. On the Confederate side, Braxton Bragg, unlike Rosecrans, disliked conferring with all his primary subordinates at the same time. In fact, Bragg had come to despise councils of war and anything that smacked of them. That's because at the Battle of Perryville in the fall of 1862, when Bragg called a council of war, his officers voted to retreat. That vote would later become controversial, with some of his commanders denying they advocated retreat. And after the Battle of Stones River, a meeting on the night of January 2, 1863, reached a similar conclusion. That decision further eroded the army leadership's confidence in Bragg. As we've made clear, by the spring of 1863, Bragg was at odds with many of his lieutenants, and the Army of Tennessee was racked with dissension. Bragg's relationships with his chief subordinates never recovered, and because of that, and having had very poor experiences with command conferences in the past, Bragg now tended to avoid such meetings and preferred individual discussions instead. When the fighting ended on the 19th, Bragg, from his headquarters at Thedford Ford, kept his own counsel and quickly reached several key decisions. First, he would resume the offensive the next morning. He was still fixated on his original plan of turning the federal left flank, cutting the Yankees off from Chattanooga, and pushing them to the southwest where they would be crushed in the mountainous cul-de-sac at McLemore's Cove. The other major decision Bragg made was to reorganize the Army of Tennessee right in the middle of the battle and divide it into two wings. You see, Bragg was aware that Lieutenant General James Longstreet, Lee's old warhorse, had arrived at the railroad station outside Ringgold and would be joining the army that night. Longstreet's reputation as a first-rate combat commander preceded him, and Bragg, wanting to make use of his talents, decided to divide the army into two wings, giving Longstreet one and Leonidas Polk the other. The way the battle had unfolded on the 19th had disappointed Bragg, but in truth, that was merely the latest of a series of frustrations. The army had been functioning poorly since the retreat from Chattanooga 11 days earlier. Part of the problem, of course, was the dysfunctional, toxic interactions that had poisoned the Army of Tennessee's high command since the aftermath of the Kentucky campaign. But part of the problem here at Chickamauga was also the rapid influx of new officers and troops in such a short time. You see, just before the campaign began, the army consisted of two infantry and one cavalry corps, with Forrest's cavalry division 
operating semi-independently. Less than three weeks later, Bragg's command had expanded to include no less than five infantry and two cavalry corps. The army had swollen from a force of seven divisions, four infantry and three cavalry, to 15 divisions, 11 of infantry. To make matters worse, some of these new divisions had been created on the fly by joining together whatever assorted brigades were handy. As a result, old command relationships were disrupted and new ones were forged overnight. Needless to say, there's more involved in creating an effective military force at the Army level than simply rewriting an organizational chart. As a result, in addition to the already very difficult command situation predating the campaign, the Army of Tennessee was now also suffering the normal teething pains of a new force coming into being. The textbook solution for shaking down a new organization is time. Time for training. Time for relationships and trust to develop. But Bragg had no time. On the night of the 19th, he was right in the middle of a desperate engagement. Troops from all over the South had been rushed to his aid, and he was expected to produce results. Bragg had fought the battle on the 19th, trying to direct the actions of five infantry corps commanders and two cavalry corps commanders, but the results had been disappointing. But with Longstreet's imminent arrival, one potential means of simplifying the Army's command structure was at hand. Longstreet's arrival would give Bragg three lieutenant generals, since Leonidas Polk and D.H. Hill were also of that grade, although Hill's appointment was provisional, pending Confederate congressional approval. And in the Confederate rank structure, a lieutenant general properly commanded a corps, However, prior to Longstreet's arrival, four of the Army of Tennessee's corps were led by major generals, and one, Forrest, was led by a brigadier general. All of that's to say, Bragg clearly needed to shift some of his command burden, and leaving Longstreet to assume command of just his own corps seemed to be a waste of talent, especially with the able John B. Hood currently leading those troops. In theory, splitting the army in half into two wings would maximize the impact of Longstreet's arrival on the scene. On the night of the 19th, Bragg apparently reasoned that if the way the campaign and battle had unfolded thus far had been disappointing, perhaps dividing the army into two wings would improve the situation. Bragg seemed to assume that his decision could hardly make things worse. But whether it was actually a good idea to reorganize his army in the middle of a battle has been a hotly debated topic for the past 160 years. In any case, next time, we'll look at how Bragg's plans for the third day of the battle began to unravel pretty much right from the get-go, even before the sun rose on the morning of September 20th. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation, and this is actually a re-recommendation of a Bragg biography. It's Braxton Bragg, The Most Hated Man of the Confederacy by Earl J. Hess. 
We thought we'd recommend Hess's biography of Bragg once again, since Bragg's story really is a fascinating one, especially his time in command of the Army of Tennessee, when he had troubles piled on top of endless troubles. Don't forget you can find a list of all of our book recommendations if you head over to the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. If you'd like to help support the podcast, there are several ways for you to do that. One way is to sign up on Patreon to be a member of the Strawfoot Brigade. And while that monthly support helps us out, you get access to over 135 members' episodes about various and sundry topics. The latest members' episode was on Mrs. General Stewart, in which we looked at the life of Jeb Stewart's widow after he was mortally wounded at Yellow Tavern in May 1864. Anyway, we want to thank the newest members of the Strawfoot Brigade, so thanks to Andy F., Steve A., and Adam S. for their support of the podcast. And thanks to John G. for his donation. We noticed that John is from County Cork, Ireland, just like Patrick Claiborne. Yep. Well, thanks, John. And thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. Tracy and I do hope that you join us again next time when we'll continue with the story of the Battle of Chickamauga. But until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye.